Captain's log, stardate 459.44.54.9.4.462.71.460.41.460.71. Having set a course as far as possible from referable outputs, the Starship Praxis is progressing at warp speed for a timely contribution to academic banter. All right, Louise, do you want to do the intro this time? Yes. If I could, well, the, the thing is, like, I'm always suspicious when Alex asks because usually she asks when there's something that I can't pronounce in it, and she knows that. Um, so, this one's fine. It's just okay. that you haven't done it in several weeks because you're lazy. I'm not lazy. I'm just suspicious of you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Love My Praxis. This week we're speaking with Nora Castle, a PhD student in English and Comparative Literary Studies based at the University of Warwick. From cannibalism to the end of the kitchen as we know it, Nora's research chews over the importance of food in our discussions of environmental futures. Her delectable dissertation, titled Food, Foodways and Environmental Crisis in Contemporary Speculative Fiction, is supported by the Chancellor's International Scholarship. And Sorry, I thought I read that wrong. No, that is right. No, you did. You read it right. Well done. I mean, I'm... I've got half a sentence left and I've got to give a commentary on my experience of doing this because... I, I mean, Chancellor's was a big word. It was, it was. Sorry, supported by the Chancellor's International Scholarship, just said it again to show off, and arises at the intersection of food studies, environmental humanities and science fiction. Our mouths are already watering. That was Alex's little comment there. Yeah, I had fun with the puns. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Nora. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's very great to have you, quote unquote, here in the ether. Um, I mean, how many puns do you actually get into a, an average essay or chapter of a book? Because I would imagine it has to be a lot, right? Oh, yeah, I have to I have to cut some of them out sometimes because there's too many. Um, Why? But a big one is um, what's at stake? Because I write about meat a lot. Oh, so that one nice. comes up. Nice. Yep. I would like end every introduction with let's digest <laughs> like, or, <laughs> like a dickhead or, or maybe maybe it's better like as a conclusion like what are my takeaways is that what oh I mean? yeah that's, that's pretty that's good. good that's pretty good yeah. yeah i'm not trying to think of more but i forked it up oh, oh she did it yeah. that's not Sorry. very nice oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> i mean half the time i think I think going into academia is just to kind of like find an area that you can make the most puns with and use them in like essay titles or conference titles or keynotes. Like that's the only reason that we do this, right? I mean, the, the whole thing about researching water is because it's just so easy to pun. Flow, trickle down. Moist. Trickle down. Moist. <laughs> just for all those people just out the there that moist. hate that word. <laughs> it's my podcast. Gosh. I can say it. <laughs> But um, I think with you, it's, it's just more about talking about wet things. <laughs> no, that's what you think I do. I don't talk about wet things that often. You do. <laughs> she really does. Like when we shared an office, I discovered the field of wet ontologies, which is the ontology of wetness, which I just, I'm still just boggled by. I just, I don't understand <laughs> like what is wet. Isn't, isn't there like water is the essence of wetness? Isn't that from like Zoolander? <laughs> that is Zoolander. And I really do want to give a talk titled Water is the Essence of Wetness just because of that. Please do. Dare you. We're all guilty of that. You know, the absolute paper title, which is always like something quirky in a pun, colon, 
I'm going to say what I actually mean to say because (laughs) I'm too scared of being too fun. Like, so I need to clarify after the colon. That's how I structure all my titles. Yeah, that or the like overly alliterated Mm -hmm. series of words. That or the um, a quotation from the text Mm. that you're going to talk about, colon, what you really want to talk about. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I've actually got that next week. I've got a conference coming up and I've just taken a, a quote from a poem because I didn't have the energy to come up with a title, let alone an abstract. So they've just kind of got a, a smattering of the poem and that'll work. Bonus points if the quote has a pun. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. And only that. And the other way. And I'm more likely to think of a good title and then not write the paper. That's my thing. Have you ever kind of like actually decided to do a piece of research specifically to get a pun? I mean, when am I not doing that? Every draft that I send to my supervisor, there's always at least one sentence where he he highlights it and he's like, this is why I supervise people because I get to read weird sentences about whether we can genetically engineer cows not to fart or like whatever <laughs> weird thing I've put in my dissertation <laughs> as an aside. I just got to keep him on his toes, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's lockdown. Lord knows Graham needs some entertainment. That's right. Shout out to Graham. I know you listen. Hi, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have no idea if he listens. I, I don't know. <laughs> sneaky people listen, though. Sneaky people do listen. Yes, yeah, sneaky people. I, I've been caught out a couple of times where people being like, oh, your podcast. And I'm like, fuck. I have literally discussed like, <laughs> my trip to the gynecologist. I've discussed like my mother not loving me enough, going on holiday without me for Christmas. I have said a lot on this podcast and I forget that like people listen that's the whole point and I still invite you to things Louise that's great honestly it's this testament to like you know I don't know something <laughs> the quality of your work lol no no definitely not that everybody wants to be a cat because the cat's the only cat can pass judgment on Derrida's naked body. I do feel like the weird stuff flies really well in science fiction studies. Like, Mm -hmm. if you do weird things, people tend to like you more, which is why I've sort of positioned myself that way because I can't help but just do weird shit. So, like, people give presentations on, like, Sharknado and, like, God knows (laughs) what else crazy stuff. And you're just like, yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Sign me up. Please pay me money to do this. I mean, that is the dream to write a conference paper about Sharknado and get paid for it. That is ideal. I went into the wrong field, like Victorian studies. Like, I mean, we have banter too in 19th century, but um, it's it's a bit harder to find than Sharknado lol. I think we should do the jingle. We should do the jingle. I say we. Are you ready? You. Me, because once again, you have not found your kazoo and I have been relegated to the task once more. It's because I'm bad at it. Okay. Yes. (laughs) I also have never seen this particular song being performed, so we'll see how it goes. Are you? I know Louise's eyes have just kind of narrowed slightly. Yeah, please, please do this. (laughs) Are you ready, Nora? You have to tell us the song and why it's relevant. Oh no! Okay. I don't know how else it goes. I think I went to a different song there. That was my kazoo impression. How's that? I feel like, isn't that, um, yeah, sorry, I can't, I can't tell if my microphone picks up my clapping. That's the first time you've got applause. It's the first time I've got applause, and I'm going to take it, and I'm just going to loop it. I'm going to take that bit of applause. We know that that was your thinking sound. Like, like we're going to take it as applause. It just claps awkwardly into my ear in order to stall. Like food, glorious food, right? From from yes, Albert Twist. Yes. 
Yeah. Yes. yes. He did it. Oh my God. That's the one. I think that's the first time in like five weeks that someone's actually gotten the song. Yeah. But we've, we've had a bit of a, a bit of a run. <laughs> I blame our, our guests. Yes, definitely. It's nothing to do with our praxis. Um, Not at all. Yeah. So why is that relevant to you and to your research? Please explain. Well, it's relevant to me because I write about food. So that's easy, easy one. I work on food studies. I do more like contemporary speculative fic sort of environmental humanities focused food stuff i mean food scarcity comes up a lot it's not something that i talk about that much but it definitely comes mm-hmm. up and that's sort of part of that oh i love this so you're already you're already really digging down into it because of the kind of the class elements of like food glorious food and the idea that's not a lot of food around we literally just chose it because it had the word food in it um but you've got <laughs> the whole sort of like oh my god scarcity oh my god economics of food no literally just like like what is food Capitalism. studies <laughs> basically the entry point was like that's one of my go-to though capitalism bad capitalism (laughs) bad that's basically that's the whole dissertation it's just like it's just 80 pages of the words capitalism bad over and over again that's it since you did give us an actually good answer um just gonna gonna ask so what are the environmental sort of factors when you're talking about foods, particularly in speculative fiction like really drilling down my mother listens here how are you going to explain to my mother what the environmental factors <laughs> explain it to Faye okay Louise's mom here we go there's a lot of different layers I'd say so there's like where like you can grow food like an onion <laughs> okay now, now I'm going on like Everybody a cake. engine in my brain yeah we'll, we'll just spend the rest of it <laughs> quoting Shrek instead <laughs> but yeah I mean it's there's a lot of different layers I'd say like an onion and um, so there's sort of like where you can grow food and um, that is changing because of climate change. And it's it's likely that places we grow food now won't be able to grow food later or won't be able to grow the same food. Like you're starting to be able to get wine from Canada now. Like that's wild. Thank God. Um, <laughs> and, and, but then also like, especially with meat, um, there's a lot of factors and with monocrops too. So like the way that we farm now is really bad for the environment. Agriculture is responsible for so much greenhouse gas emissions, but also like antibiotic resistance in farm animals and like animal welfare issues. And um, then even some of like the technological solutions to some of these problems also cause other problems and use a lot of energy to produce processed foods, for example, or a lot of water to produce vegan alternatives. So, I mean, kind of everywhere you look, there's an environmental problem. And even when we're trying to solve... Welcome to the environmental humanities, everyone. How have you managed this? How have you managed to draw me into your environmental humanities, Alex? (laughs) Welcome, Louise. We got you at vegan milk. Oh, oat milk is life, (laughs) but not oatly. Oatly is bad because they give money to Amazon and shit. They're the creamiest fuck. Oh my yeah. God. Minor figures is, is the best one that I've found. But then someone's going to pipe up and be like, oh, actually, me. Um, so, how do you deal with that? Like, if you're thinking about like environmental issues and food, like, I can't help but think that, like, I couldn't help but wonder, sex and say. Um, sorry. <laughs> I, I'm very, like, ADHD today. My brain is like, bing, bing, bing. <laughs> so, apologies to anyone listening to this because there are all the tangents. Um, but I'll um, cut this. Yeah, this, this is quality <laughs> content. Shut your mouth. I would never cut this. This is too good. Like, how should we think about the fact that pretty much there's a bad side to everything, 
like you know if that was really Sorry, i love this this is such a great like softball question this is the second question we've asked on this podcast the first being like what is food studies the second is how do you solve all of the environmental crises that are around us every day and how do you cope with that on a personal <laughs> level Nora? no but on, but on a personal <laughs> level like if you're like i said you're trying to be good you go for your mm-hmm. oat milk over your almond milk because almond milk is all the the water and the oat milk's slightly better but then you discover that the oat milk company is like giving money to amazon who's burning our rainforest and doing all sorts of insidious shit so like how do we do how do i get my oat flat white (laughs) i mean that's that's the main question here i mean i think you just do try to do a little bit better but then just feel bad all the time anyway excellent good yeah (laughs) just feel (laughs) shitty all the time you can only do as much as you can do right like i think the important thing is to try to do a little bit better like as far as you can but obviously like telling people who don't have very much money to like buy expensive vegan products isn't going to work right like and there's no Mm -hmm. point in shitting on people who can't do that for not doing it so I think like Mm -hmm. you have to ride that line of like oh I'm I'm like I don't know eating this steak I'm a bad person versus like no it's the companies that are wrong like they've provided this for me so you have to ride that line of like personal responsibility and like oh we're in a capitalist world system that makes all my choices bad choices and Mm -hmm. and just try to like find a gray space that you're comfortable in every now and then on twitter you get the um oh well i went shopping and i managed to buy a parsnip and lots of things for 93 pence there's no reason why people should be eating crap like you know this whole like poor people eat crap because of reasons but and then you've always got some middle class person who's going around waitrose for their essential parsnip and saying caterpillar yeah i discovered that waitrose has a caterpillar cake, like all good, reputable retailers of birthday party cakes. This episode was recorded prior to the controversy regarding Marks and Spencer's Colin the Caterpillar Cake and Aldi's Cuthbert the Caterpillar Cake. We at Law My Praxis believe all caterpillar cakes to be equal and a staple of British birthday celebrations. That said, hashtag free Cuthbert. Instead of calling it Colin, like fucking sensible, the original Colin the Caterpillar, Waitrose's version is Cecil. So, <laughs> I'm middle class and we got to be... Of course be, it is. Fucking Cecil. Systemic exploitation of early career researchers. I mean, this actually does, though, give me a, a, a nice seg- a segu, a segue, segue. A, segu, as we like to say here, into one of the actual questions we've prepped for today, um, which is, would you say, Nora, that the hungry, hungry caterpillar provides a sort of central methodology for your work? In other words, does food studies ever make you hungry? Food studies sometimes makes me hungry. More often than not, it makes me not hungry because I'm writing about <laughs> like really weird stuff and like cannibalism. I'm like, maybe I shouldn't. That's that's everyone's favorite question, by the way. Whenever I'm like, oh, I wrote this thing on cannibalism, they're like, oh, oh did you guys uh, practice that in the conference uh, <laughs> lunchtime? And I'm like, yeah, we sat around eating each other. Like, that's okay, sure. Wow, that, that is such that a happened. weird question to ask. It's like, to be fair, though, it's very similar. To, I've got a friend who works in um, like the sociology of drug studies, and people whenever they say this, they, she studies drugs, they're always like, oh, yeah, how many do you take? Oh, which ones? Lol, good one. So we, we're all guilty of it. I was like, well, we had Eleanor uh, Janegermeister on who does medieval sex and she was like yeah I just take all the fun out of sex if you study something that seems like badass 
you automatically ruin it. I think we should probably do our usual and ask you for a boring fact about yourself. Ooh, a boring fact. I forgot to think about this. No thought, only boring. You think too much, it's <laughs> no not thought, boring. Only boring. That's true. Well, I'm trying to, I'm so used to doing a fun fact that now I have to think of one that isn't fun. I really hate running. I just tried to do that before this podcast and it was terrible. Do not recommend. <laughs> I love that. Where did you go? I'm in uh, Cranfield right now, which is outside of Milton Keynes and it's in, like on a farm. So I just ran like on motorway and then in the field and I, I hated it. It was awful. That's my boring fact is that I don't <laughs> like running. I love that because like so many people are like, oh yeah, runner's high. Mm, running makes me feel so kind of like elated and energized. Like shut the fuck up. No one does. No one no. likes it. Running. No, thank you. I went running on Sunday and I was still, it's now Tuesday and I regret it heavily. Like sometimes I like running, but I, can't, I just can't do it by myself because I get too bored. And if I'm left alone with my own thoughts, that's really dangerous. So like, I like running and can go quite far so long as I have a friend with me so we can just chat the entire way around. And then I, then I don't hate it so much. But like, I just can't run by myself. I, I feel like that makes sense, except for like, it takes me five minutes and then I'm concentrating on not dying. So it's a little bit difficult to have a conversation. But this is the secret. Apparently you're supposed to be able to run at a pace where you can hold a conversation. So, you know, all these people that we see running past at like super, super, super speed, like fucking Tom Cruise style running weirdos. That's wrong. You're not running correctly. That's incorrect. Stop it. Slow down. Run slower. Run slower, you bastards. Decolonizing the curriculum, be like. Ah, oh, we come in peace, shoot to kill, shoot to kill, shoot to kill. We come in peace, shoot to kill, shoot to kill, man. But we should actually talk about sci-fi food because that's the more yes. interesting food. So, I have a question for you, Nora. Okay. Obviously, because I'm this ready. is an interview. I don't know if you ever saw these, but in 2018, Wu-Tang Clan um, was hired as the face of the Impossible Burger for White Castle. Have you seen that? I did not know that, but that's amazing. Oh, mate, it's incredible. I will send you the clips. But basically... Call yourself a food studies Call course. yourself a I know. food studies I'm sci-fi academic. I'm pack it in right here. <laughs> I had no idea either, don't worry. Yeah, of course not. It's the weirdest, it's the weirdest mashup ever. But basically, for the launch of the Impossible Burger, they hired Wu-Tang because Wu-Tang has uh, historically been big vegetarian advocates. And the weird series that they have, they are floating above Earth in the Wu-FO, yes, eating impossible meat burgers and answering phone calls from the planet below with these like weird existential crises questions. So my question to you is, can a burger save the world can a burger save the world i mean i i want to say no maybe wu-tang clan can save the world with their burgers but i don't think the burger itself can save the world i mean there's all this stuff about this actually like i work on in vitro meat a lot and there's this idea like dr mark post who was one of the first guys to actually create an in vitro meat burger um and he mm-hmm. tasted it on live tv and everything has this idea that you should be able to have like a prescription hamburger that helps lower your cholesterol. And like, these are like potential projects he talks about wanting to do. So he wants to do a lamb tuna burger, but then in Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake, there's a Kanga lamb burger. So there's like all these resonances there. Um, But the idea of doing like mix and match genomes Mm. to make a burger that's better for you. So that sort of stuff I think is really cool. And like personalized nutrition in in vitro meats or in like lab made foods is really cool but then can you give us a like as someone who's not well versed in in vitro what is in vitro (laughs) (laughs) um yeah sorry this is for faye this is for faye yeah so uh in vitro meat is meat that is made in a lab with animal stem cells so you Mm -hmm. take a biopsy or 
however you get the stem cells and then you proliferate them and you get a stem cell line and then you use that and you, you grow it on a scaffold usually and then that grows meat but it can only really grow like ground meat right now you can't really grow like a steak with bones in it and stuff and the first ones that they did actually didn't have any fat in it so you kind of have to figure out that that's one of the things about the prescription hamburger is that you can sort of add healthier fats in it um, so it's a thing that's still happening at the end of last year, there was a restaurant opening in Singapore. It was like a pop-up at a like social club where they served uh, chicken nuggets that were in vitro. So you have to end up with the ground meat and then make it into a nugget. And then also in Israel, they opened a restaurant to test one of the, I think it was mostly meat, to test their chicken nuggets as well. So it's a thing mm-hmm. that's like real and it's happening. It's just really expensive, but it's a lot less expensive now than it was when they first started. But the idea is that it's animal meat without the animal. So then that raises a lot of questions of like, then what happens to the animal? Is that good? I mean, in some ways it's good, but in some ways maybe it's not good. So that's mm-hmm. sort of what people who are thinking about this are are working on. Okay, cool. So that's kind of, the, I guess, like the food studies angle is like the animal ethics element of removing the animal from consumption pathways. And so with those pop-up restaurants, did they have kind of like sci-fi names at all? Because I kind of find it quite interesting that this seems to be something that happens in sci-fi world. Yeah, I also love the fact that like, you know, before you might think that a sci-fi author was like imagining and like making things into sci-fi, but then you start seeing scientists getting ideas from sci-fi Nice. So it's like this kind of total reversal. I don't know, maybe oversimplifying that. It's totally true that they end up talking to each other, though. When GMOs started first being a thing and people were protesting against them, they were always called like Frankenfoods. So people are always reaching for sci-fi to explain these new things that are happening. And like there's this really long history of this type of stuff in science fiction. So it makes sense. But also the the companies themselves are creating these sci-fi narratives. So like you have the Wu-Tang Clan in a U- in UFO. In space, yeah. In space, but then you've also got like, I think it might also be Impossible Burger, it's Beyond Burger, that has a commercial that they put out where it's an astronaut and they're on Earth and they've come back to Earth after. Reese Williams talks about this in an article he just put out, yeah. Yes, he does. He does it in the in the, in the module that we just finished working on, which is why I'm just stealing all this content for this podcast. Shout out to Reese. <laughs> Reese, who has absolutely point blank refused to come on the podcast. Yeah, shout out to Reese who has absolutely <laughs> refused at every venture that he would never come on this podcast. So Well, you're on it now. So that advert is where, yeah, I think it is Impossible Burger or you're right, Beyond Meat or something and the astronaut comes back to the, to the world. It's like, we're going into the future, but it's not on Mars or something like that. It's kind of like the future is on Earth and the future is in the form of a burger and then within that is that kind of like strange narrative of like, can a burger save the planet? Because it's not like that, that kind of one is like, but how... The environmental properties that underline in vitro meat cultures, the idea that, you know, it kind of solves all those questions that you were raising for us earlier, Nora, um, when you were giving us a kind of brief overview of all of the problems with food. So so Impossible and Beyond are both plant-based. They're not actually in vitro meat ones, but it's, it's, oh, okay. the, same, it's the same kind of underlying like techno-utopic message, which is that like we've created this alternative so we can keep doing what we're doing, but it won't fuck up the planet. But I mean, it's still Mm going to fuck up the planet. It's just going to maybe fuck it up less or in different ways, which is like a little bit depressing, but you know, what can you do? I think there's like a weird tension, um, particularly with plant-based things, because I mean, I've been vegetarian for forever, um, like 25 years or something like that. Yeah, that's how long forever is, yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. 
Shut up, Alex. You're you're a fucking newbie to the veggie lifestyle, so fuck you. Excuse me, five years. It's not new. Compared with me, it's new. It was mainly because I just don't really like meat. I don't like the taste of it. Um, it's become more of a sort of ethical thing later on, but that was what it was. But I think there's a weird tension then because we're getting better and better plant-based products, right? But there's this weird push in those plant-based products to make it more like meat to entice like the greater percentage of the population that you've got those like plant-based burgers that bleed like some sort of like Mm -hmm. diet so and you're just like i find that puts me off but i mean obviously anything needs to just cater for me and me alone but I, i think there's a weird tension there that we just can't get rid of that kind of urge to eat meat that meat has to be the be all and fucking end all which I just think is weird. Is there like a total hierarchy in sci-fi about like meat and veg and like what's kind of seen as being better to eat for various, I don't know, masculine reasons or power reasons? (laughs) I don't know, maybe I'm reaching too far there. No, I mean, there's there's a ton of stuff, like not necessarily just in sci-fi, but like a ton of stuff about like Carol J. Adams has um, the sexual politics of, of meat uh, which is a huge text that everybody refers to. And then there's also, there's a ton of stuff about meat culture, like Annie Potts has written a, um, a book on meat culture or edited, I forget which one. Um, and then John Miller and Sean McCory have a book, uh, Literature and Meat Since 1900, that also talks about it and has a cheeky little like carno scene thing. You know how we have like Anthropocene. Oh God. All that. They, <laughs> but they do it in like, a, we know there's too many scenes. We're just going to make another mm-hmm. one just for laughs. But yeah, there's definitely that tension of like, okay, we keep coming back to meat eating. Like, what does that mean? Does it sort of make these attitudes that are more broadly bad for the environment and bad for us? Does it just continue them? And, and I mean, it kind of does. One solution that I think is great that most people will think is not great is um, Josh Milburn, who writes about in vitro meat, who's over at Sheffield. He has this paper where he says, you know, if we're going to do in vitro meat and that's going to be the solution to the meat eating problem, then we should just fucking do it. Like we should use the genomes of pigs and whatever, but we should also use like, I don't know, pandas and people and like everything, dogs, like whatever. (laughs) So if you're making meat and the point is that it's meat without the animal and it's like leveling Mm -hmm. the playing field and whatever, then level the playing field. Like if you can eat everything, everything must go full on buffet. So, I mean, I think that's great. And it's like quite provocative and shocks people and makes them think a bit, but also like if the problem is like, genetic issues with cannibalism whatever and maybe you can like engineer that i don't know if you're going to go techno utopic do you just take it ad absurdum well i mean i guess that kind of is like a logical end point of it right because your, your point about how in vitro meat essentially detaches itself from the problem of the animal right if you want to kind of just wrap it up like that the problem of the pig um there is no pig there is only cells and i mean we can maybe go into that question of like well where the hell do you get the cells from blah 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 but if, if that's essentially it then yeah, I guess what what becomes of those kind of fleshed politics, right? If it is so devoid of a so-called like quote unquote, I don't know, like embodied life, like yeah, why not just go full cannibal? Tell us why is sci-fi and speculative fiction so hungry for cannibalism? So much of it is post-apocalyptic, and then you get into the like we can't grow anything anymore because we're nomadic now because I don't know, everything's attacking us or there's the weather exploded or whatever weird shit's going on. So you don't have the time to grow things and eventually all of the canned things run out. So then what are you going to do? I mean, if there's animals, I guess you eat the animals, but then eventually you run out of it. It just always ends up at cannibalism because at a certain point people are hungry and that's their only option. But a lot of these narratives take that and then they run with it so that they just replace animal agriculture with like a weird 
cannibalism mm-hmm. animal agriculture where they just make a set of humans not human anymore and then they're the animals. Some of them take it a bit farther, but some of them like the road just go for like the, oh, we're all starving and now we're going to eat somebody on the side of the road. Yeah. Or baby eating, which is a whole other thing. There seems to like always be oh yeah yeah end up in cannibalism there's always kind of a hierarchy to food and food consumption if you can't eat the lesser being i.e the animal then create a marginalized group that's the the fodder i wonder Mm -hmm. like if there's any way of taking hierarchy out of food yeah and that's something that i just have not thought through but thoughts (laughs) yeah i mean i think that that's some of the idea with some like vegetarian discourse I'm not as well versed in like vegetarian and vegan theory stuff, but I think that's part of where it's going. But then, of course, you get like the critical plant studies people who are like, but the plants are animate. It's not as... (laughs) (laughs) You always meet resistance at a certain point. Oh, meet resistance. (laughs) (laughs) Delete your account. I actually have also realized that we completely skipped over a very vital part of the podcast structure. So uh, we ask normally for an academic Tinder bio, and you kindly provided us with one. So could you please, for our wonderful audience, tell us your academic Tinder bio? So it's research so hot you could fry an egg on it. Interesting. Louise, thoughts? I'm there. Like, I'm a vegetarian who eats eggs, so... I am tempted here. This is this is good. This is good. I do prefer poached egg because I'm a hipster wanker. Mm, um, with avocado toast, yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you can make research so hot that you could poach an egg and smash an avocado. But if you could, mm. that would be like, I think you have a thing on Tinder apparently where you get like a super like. That would be my super like. Um, because again, I'm a hipster cunt and just for the record, that word is absolutely okay in Glasgow. So if anyone's listening, (laughs) she's got such a filthy mouth, that's fine up here. But yeah, no, I I think I'd like, I'd still swipe right because you know, I still like eggs. I'm just interested in the idea of like, what makes it hot? Like, is it Mm. just sort of like, cause it's so fucking lit. Like your research is so cutting edge and it's like on fire and all those other kind of forms that it's just sizzling with potential or like, mm. it's also making me think of, I don't know, like one of these really, really old, awful, I don't even think it's a meme, but I remember it from like fucking years ago. It was like a stupid, stupid internet poem, which was like, leg so hot, it fry an egg, hot, hot egg, hot, hot leg. Stupid, really <laughs> stupid. <laughs> That sounds like something you should be teaching. <laughs> I'm going to share it because it's so stupid. It's just like, it's really... <laughs> Maybe I should teach it in one of my poetry classes. <laughs> an erotic poem. Leg so hot, hot, hot leg. Leg so hot, you fry an egg. There we go. That's what it's called. I'm going to send you this to you right now. I'm going to put it as an epigraph. <laughs> so this is what I thought of. Are you, and basically saying like, you know, are you trying to tell us that your your thesis has like erotic leg really sexy egg legs. energy? Yeah, leggy. really sexy legs. It has big leg egg energy, yeah. (laughs) Good to know. But what makes it hot? What makes it hot in your opinion? Well, I was going for the like, your mixtape is so hot type vibe. Or is it a bin fire? It could be a bin fire. I, yeah. It's a bin fire. I completely missed that. (laughs) Louise, that's so fucking harsh. Is it hot because it's a fucking pile of trash? Like... (laughs) (laughs) In my my defense, I am remembering my own PhD experience. (laughs) 
and completely putting that on you. I'm sure your PhD experience is a lot better than mine because mine was a binfire. You know, I think like it was, it's an emotional binfire, but hopefully the actual writing will be less of a binfire. I See, mean, it was relevant, Alex. So relevant. This this leg thing that you've sent with the picture of the egg on the leg oh, reminds like, me yeah. so much of, um, do you know that thing where that guy got a restaurant that didn't exist to the top of um, London's TripAdvisor? Yes, and oh, it was yes. like literally in a skip. That was the thing. That was the thing with, um, I think that was the one where he set up a Deliveroo or something where they he made it in a skip. But there's a different one oh, where yes. it was like, yeah, yeah. He set up this fake restaurant in his shed in the backyard. I think it was like a vice thing. So good. And and the restaurant didn't exist. But one of the pictures that he took for the restaurant that was supposed to be like some sort of, I don't know, a ham hock and an egg is just his ankle with an egg on it. amazing i love it so uh, i thought see i thought you were going to make a reference to the um again this is dating my internet experience but the how-to basic videos Did you ever oh, watch those yes where, it's, where it. it always ends with a smashed egg in some shape or form um t- truly terrifying what that man does you cannot change the laws of fraxis laws of fraxis I do want to ask a couple of questions though about hotness because okay. like <laughs> I'm ready uh, <laughs> my body is ready my body is ready um, but in terms of space food like I'm, I'm kind of struck by how quite often nothing is actually cooked it's just kind of like fabricated like there mm. don't seem to be any ovens in space thoughts yeah yeah, so I was thinking about this a little bit earlier because when you were asking about like the connections between sci-fi and like in vitro meat stuff, one of the big connections is that NASA was one of the first people to try to do it in order to then do it in space. And then eventually they gave up and figured it was going to be too expensive and not worth it and they could do other stuff. But yeah, like a lot of actual space food for a long time was just like dehydrated sadness. Mm. I think it's getting better now and they have better options up there. I don't know that much about like actual space food, but in terms of like sci-fi space food, there's a lot of food that just sort of magically appears, like yeah, um, and that just like sort of like cooking that stuff like into existence. Yeah, there's like the kitchen. I've I've been starting to work on like sci-fi kitchens a little bit, and the thing that I'm writing now, and like what does it look like? And a lot of it is like you just push a button and the thing happens. So mm-hmm. it's like sort of taking the labor out, which is the question I'm looking at is like, okay, well, that's like traditionally women's labor. And like, what does that mean? Does mm-hmm. it actually free the woman from the kitchen? And like, usually it doesn't, but maybe sometimes it does. Sorry, love. Uh, <laughs> get back in there and push more buttons. And so, I mean, there's a lot of that, like, even in like the really old SF, I mean, I don't know, there's probably someone out there being like, that's not that old. Why are you calling me old? But like in some of it, I don't know, like forties, there's one where you like go to a restaurant and it's like a silver tube and you push the buttons for like salt and pepper and it just sort of like sprays it all into your face. And that's the meal. So there's a ton mm-hmm. of this stuff where like the food isn't, it, it doesn't come from anywhere. It just sort of happens. Um, and I'm interested in that because there's so much in terms of food studies, there's a lot about like place, especially like in geography, there's a lot of people who work on food and look at like place and space and food and sci-fi tends to just like 
decide that that doesn't matter at all, which hmm. is interesting. And like, it's especially interesting when you look at these food companies that do, are doing like tech food, because mm-hmm. they seem to want to do that where it's not tied to any place. You can just sort of do it wherever, like you can brew meat at home, like a home brewer eventually. Like that's one of the ideas, which mm, is kombucha wild. move over time for home brewed steaks. Oh. You can just imagine the wankery that would go on in somewhere like we live in Deniston, the east end of Glasgow, and that that would be top six in the world. Yeah, uh, I believe it's number eight actually, but it's fine. Oh, shit, it's fine, it's fine. But uh, yeah, it's just it's very hipster, and uh, you can just imagine the fucking man bun brigade getting out there like brewing their meat, meat brewing yeah kits. We'll get invitations to like once lockdown is finally over to like a brew party where they'll have made their own beer, brewed their own kombucha, made a sourdough sandwich, which is then filled with their own homegrown vat meat. And I will want to fucking go back into lockdown. It'll be that bad. Yeah. And pickles. You can't forget pickles. Oh, fucking pickles. Very fucking hipster. kimchi. Kimchi. And everywhere. kimchi. Yeah. <laughs> that like question of place is really interesting. I saw, I went, I was in Tesco the other day and there was a stock in like what looked to me like a beer can. Like it was a mm-hmm. beer can of stock. And I was just like, what is happening? So oh, apparently you can put anything in a beer can. So maybe instead of spam, you're going to have like homebrew, canned homebrew meats. I've definitely seen like chicken in a can in America. So I don't know, like like, a, like an actual like chicken, not like <laughs> chunked up chickens, but like an actual chicken in a can. <laughs> I, oh, is that I like- just a specimen in like the pathology museum or something like yeah it's like jellied and everything i don't know i don't know why how i saw it it was it disturbed me greatly though um but like disturbing food like it's it's kind of interesting because to me this is how i think of sci-fi food sci-fi food is either like really weirdly like neat and clean and as you say like has no labor involved but there's also no i don't know demonstrable organic origin to it like it's very like cuboid and they take out the ick yeah there's no ick or on the other end, it is all fucking disgusting and yucky. Yeah, like soil and greens. It's people. Yeah. Spoiler. Souls. I mean, what, what? So what? What's going on then with like the aesthetics of sci-fi food and like the ick versus the yum? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of them have been missing the yum. And there's like Gary Westfall wrote this. I guess it was originally a conference paper, and then it was put in an edited collection. Wrote a thing called like the sad gourmet at the. Scientific Cafe, Scientific Cafe, I don't know, Scientific Cafe mushed together um, about how all sci-fi food, even in good futures, is just shit. Not literal shit, but like not good. I mean, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> it could be people. Um, it could be shit. It could be. It could be people's shit. Yeah. It's free. It's environmentally friendly, right? I suppose yeah. it depends what you're feeding them. <laughs> corn fed. Stop it, Louise. Corn, corn um. fed. <laughs> <laughs> you see the evidence in front of you stop it louise um yeah (laughs) but i think there's some works now that are actually going for like the really amazing food futures like i think becky chambers um the wayfair series does fantastic food it looks awesome like it sounds amazing and fantasy has done this really well for such a long time oh my god fantasy food is the best it's so good so sci-fi is like finally maybe catching up a little like there's this mm-hmm. book um, called The Soul Majestic by Ferret Steinmetz, which is about like a space restaurant, but it's like the food is fantastic and amazing. It's like sort of oat cuisine, but in space. So I think they're catching up a little bit. Yeah, because I was trying to think of like good space food because it was either this kind of like weird, icky, porridgey mush or 
very kind of neat cuboids or this kind of like weird instantaneous food where like you know, I'm trying to think now of Star Trek and they just kind of zap in whatever they want and it suddenly appears, mm-hmm. which kind of like it's food, but it also because there's no kind of cooking process, it makes me suspicious. Yeah. They all complain that it's not as good because it's exactly the same every time. So you don't have like the flair of somebody like, I don't know, putting more salt or putting more whatever. It's exactly yeah, the where's same. Where's the flavor? There's no flavor the in flavor. space. Fucking awful. Yeah. But I think if you think about what makes things yummy, like <laughs> yummy. Uh, but like, what, <laughs> Why do you say that's such a fucking weird way? What makes things yummy? <laughs> That's just mm. how I talk. But, how I say but, yummy. Yummy. No, but anyway, <laughs> um, but, but you know, but there's this, this whole thing of if you can create like a fictional food, then how do you make it that something that's not just so perfect that it's just kind of sterile and there's nothing there? Like if you're creating fictional food, what is it that makes it yummy? Um, <laughs> does it have to just be a little bit messy or a little bit shit? Like, what is it that makes it, but not like literal shit that we were talking about earlier? What makes food good? <laughs> I think in most of these, it's like a person makes it. In both Becky Chambers and the Steinmetz books, mm. like in all of those, there's a cook who's cooking it and that makes a big difference. There's also, I was thinking, there's this whole big thing of like noodles in sci-fi and like somehow most futures, it's like always Asian. I'm thinking like Firefly had that whole thing about... Oh my God, Firefly, yes. But there, then there was oh, that whole like Orientalist critique of it. Food studies people, we have to ruin everything. It's fine. <laughs> uh, but I'm also trying to think of like what, so Blade Runner also has that weird Orientalist future. Mm-hmm. Um, Fifth sure Element. There. Fifth Element, mm-hmm. oh, what a banger. Also has that weird orientalist element there. Also massively orientalist. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so sad. Submitting to a journal be like. And I think it's gonna be a long, long time. How do you get drunk in space? Like, if we can get a space burger pretty easily, like, how do we get a pint, like, a you know, a pie and a pint combo, a burger and a pint combo? Like, what about mm. space drinks? Um, space and the only ones that kind of came to mind were mech, which is this kind mm-hmm. of like home brewed, like, kind of. Sedu- hipsters like- in space again <laughs> <laughs> hipsters in space um but it's that kind of like sedative tea right it's mm-hmm. kind of quite mellowing and then the other on the other spectrum of things was like the pan galactic gargle blaster from hitchhiker's yeah. guide to the galaxy which nice. is like the drink i would always want to try in my life but i don't know have you thought anything at all about what you would pair your space food with well so there's a lot of alcohol in the expanse um, which mm-hmm. is like both a TV show and there's like novels and short stories and stuff. So they've got a lot of like crazy alcohols. Um, there's also a lot of like alcohols with synthetic alcohol in them. So they don't actually really get you drunk because you're on a spaceship and you have to be able to like do stuff when they need you to do stuff, which is kind of boring. But then somebody <laughs> inevitably has like a bottle of some liquor from some planet hidden in their office and they just drink that instead. They also have like, the, you know, Jupiter's third moon. Give me a shot of that. I forget which one of the Becky Chambers ones it's in, but they go to that party and then every single alien species has their own alcohol and you can, or their own beverage, like their own cocktail. And then you can go and like try other species cocktails and mm-hmm. it's a big party. Do alien <laughs> cocktails fuck you up even more? I hope so. I guess you'd need it because you're freaking the fuck out. But I get that is one of the things that she, I think she does in her series is that she does kind of highlight how different foods aren't compatible with certain alien bodies. And then similarly, I guess, like, you know, I mean, I guess I'm trying to now think about, you know, when you go on a night out and you've got like a really small friend who's like just tiny, tiny 
and quite slim <laughs> and like doesn't eat very much anyway and then they have like two shots and they're fucking done like i imagine that's kind of what we're talking about here in terms of like different kind of ways of processing alcohol but um and now i just really want to go out you okay han you okay han <laughs> okay han oh my gosh yeah I, I now i'm gonna have uh that song from rupaul's Drag Race in my head for the rest of <laughs> my dong, life dong. Yeah, the, the most cursed content I think we've ever created is when we took that song and they made it about the UK excellence framework. <laughs> cursed or highlight of our career? That's the question. They're the same thing. I, I want to go back to something you just highlighted just now, which I think maybe answers some of our early questions in terms of like space stuff sometimes is boring because you're just like trying to survive, right? So is that maybe why there's no flavor in space? Because no one's got any time for fucking seasoning because they're too busy trying to kind of... <laughs> you know establish a colony leave me alone colonel sanders i just want to survive <laughs> just want to survive i don't want your your special seasonings and now i'm just thinking of like poor fucking matt damon who is always getting oh, lost in space or growing his sad sad potatoes and running out of ketchup like you know he's just trying mm. to get through he's just trying to make it yeah i mean some of these like reminds me of that that meme about the british empire this you know we conquered the whole world for spices and then decided we didn't like any of them <laughs> classica i i like that i i just decided i was british then i don't know not british from a different fucked up country but yeah i mean there's like i'm thinking of Anne leakey's the imperial raj trilogy where they have skell i think it's called which is like a, like a green nutritional supplement thing that they mostly mm -hmm. eat, but then they have this huge tea culture. It's like a super colonial fleet, and they're all about like conquering other places and making them part of the empire, and they don't really have very exciting food at all. So maybe it's mm -hmm. it's part of that, like all the conquering people are too busy, like, you know, I don't know, raiding and pillaging, they don't have time. So like... Colonizers have no seasoning. I only just realized, because I am really slow, the Borg in Star Trek is like colonization. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> because you assimilate with the Borg and it's I like... know, but what are you fucking talking about? <laughs> I don't know. I, my brain is doing things um... Star Wars is a hero's journey. <laughs> oh, fuck. Sorry, my brain is like... <laughs> it got stuck on the Borg. It got stuck on the Borg. Oh, yeah, I, I have a question. A relevant question, maybe. Um... Yeah, so like, <laughs> shut up, Alex. <laughs> She's literally got her head in her hands. Like, I love it. I know pretty much fuck all about sci-fi, which might be quite clear. But when I think about sci-fi, I think about roboticness, and, which might be totally incorrect. I was wondering whether there's a connection between like food and emotion in sci-fi literature. So like, because I get really fucking hangry. Is there is a hanger in sci-fi fiction? Is there a connection between sci-fi fiction mm. and science fiction? stop no no extra fiction <laughs> sci-fi fiction science fiction fiction science fiction fiction and science fiction fiction i think it depends like there's definitely like nostalgia associated with food in some sci-fi and um, especially like the spaceship ones where they just eat like reconstituted bullshit and then they're all wanting to go i don't know on the space station or go home and have real food and some of the newer ones where they're actually having decent food there's definitely emotion connected but i think in some of them where it's just food as fuel that kind mm -hmm. of isn't as important and a lot of sf they just use food as fuel and that ties into to the like kind of food from nowhere thing which is a phrase i'm stealing from chris morgan's essay 
on food fuel and the fantastic, which is awesome. It becomes part of this, like, food comes from nowhere. So like, it's not as emotionally laden, there's not as much of a connection. But yet, I think the, the connection that's most there is probably the nostalgia, like for food that isn't shit, especially in like, these stressed futures where they're like, eating really sad things. And it's like the grandma being like, Oh, I can remember back when we had chicken stock and things weren't horrible. I don't know why it's just really fucking depressing as it is. It's like, I remember when we could make stock from bones. <laughs> I'd be angry all the time. Yeah. The number of times I'll have an argument with my partner and she'll just be like, eat something. And I'll be like, I'm not fucking hungry. I'm actually, I'm genuinely annoyed. And then I'll have something yeah, to li- eat. Your I'll life is like, a fucking Snickers advert, Louise. No, I, I feel that though. I'm definitely that like where I just get really annoyed and then I eat something and I'm like, oh, that was, that was it. <laughs> Sorry for what I said when I was hungry. That's like an interesting leaping, jumping, frogging point. That's a word. Where by detaching food, not only from its kind of animal origins or organic origins and therefore making it like endlessly replicable, it's kind of also detaching it from some sort of cultural memory and history and that sense of familial structures and emotion. There's no affect with that kind of food, I guess. There's no flavor, there's no Mm. affect. Please write a paper called No Flavor. No No Flavor flavor. in Space. (laughs) I just kept thinking of those really old Fanta advertisements and they were like, tell me what's your flavor. You know yeah. what I'm talking what's about? What's your flavor? Tell me what's your flavor? Yeah. Oh. I exactly. have no idea what this is. I'm pretty sure there's a Craig <laughs> David song. Oh, I have no idea. But maybe it was mostly a US thing where they had these ads on all the time. Also, did you just, did you pronounce it Fanta? How do you say it? Fanta. Fanta. I can't tell. I couldn't, I couldn't decide which one was right. So I just get, picked one. It's like envelope or envelope. I don't remember which one I say. It's just whatever No, happens. Fanta and Fanta is not the same as envelope, envelope. This is not a potato, potato situation. It's fucking Fanta. Like <laughs> <laughs> Fanta sounds so weird, though. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry, Nora. Fanta sounds weird. <laughs> <laughs> because, like, if you're, like, you're a fan of Fanta. Like, I'm a, I'm a fan of Fanta. I'm a Fanta fan. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I decided that that, I don't know if that's right. Or if I, mean, I just I love it. decided I wanted to, to go have forward what in I life. thought was a British accent. I don't know. You can't just elongate all the vowels. Watch me. Fanta fiction. Fantastic, yeah. Franz Fanon. No, that actually is Okay, we I have one final question then. So I think one question is important. One final question is like on 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 the pronunciation of strange foods, Fanta Fanta. What is your favorite? sci-fi speculative fiction food that you have come across what would you eat oh that's hard i love asian food so i would get like all the noodles noodles are an easy out but i feel like i mean to be honest i think like some of the things that sound a bit gross to like people probably from the us and uk sound really cool to me like becky chambers has this like cricket burger thing like a fried cricket burger that sounds like Mm -hmm. really i kind of want to try it i don't know if that's something i want to try because i love it (laughs) But it's something I want to try because it sounds weird and I like weird stuff. I've eaten crickets before. They're actually quite good. Yeah, I've had, um, have I had crickets? I've had, I must, I must have, yeah. I don't know. I, I also like look into insects a little bit in, in like the research that I do. So I'm kind of like very like, yeah, we should eat insects. Woo-hoo. But yeah, so I think I would try like, what was it? A, I think it was a grasshopper burger, but yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. That does sound familiar. But yeah, no, I am. Um, 
because I was just thinking this morning I was like what are the speculative foods that I've seen and like thought like oh damn that does look quite tasty though and have you seen that future arm episode about the poplars is that the one where they're like little they're real they look like, they yeah. look like they look like popcorn chicken and oh my fucking god I miss popcorn chicken so whenever, whenever I see that episode of future arm I'm just like oh they do look damn tasty though those tiny tiny alien babies damn it Tiny alien babies. We went back to eating babies by accident, but this time less terrible. Ah, oh, well, it's a nice full circle. <laughs> yeah, perfect way to end on eating babies. Yeah, we'll end on eating babies. Perfect. Wonderful. Great. Professional Standards Framework works with individuals and institutions in higher education to provide students with an excellent learning experience. So um, in terms of actual endings, then, is there anything that you would like us to plug? Anything that you would like to shout to the Ruafters about that you would like people to be aware of? We will tag things and put things in show notes. So, Yeah, so I have a book chapter that's coming out in a book called Interdisciplinary Essays on Cannibalism, Bites Here and There. Um, it's coming out, I think now it's in May, but like it showed up on Google Books today and I got very excited and like probably way too preemptively posted about Ooh. it. Um, but like the hardcover is not coming out for another month or two. But yeah, so I have a chapter in that on sixth extinction cannibalism. And then I'm also working on some special issues that should hopefully come to fruition soon, but on animal futurity and on food futures. Um, which will come out next year. So that's a bit early. But yeah, the main thing is the the book chapter that's coming out soon. Can I just say really, really relevant again? The Borg? The Borg. Also, colonialism. <laughs> Are you proud of me for not mentioning or singing anything from Sweeney Todd? We've been talking about cannibalism this whole time. I just that's want true. to say this is a moment of personal growth. <laughs> that is all. <laughs> We're going to cut that into the end. That's going to be great. Yeah, that's <laughs> no, you know what? Actually, if you end up editing this, every fucking interstitial is just going to be Sweetie Todd, I can bet you right now. Uh, <laughs> no. No. Yes. We've been long my praxis. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget... A five-star output deserves five-star reviews. No reviewer two comments, please. Shout out to our biggest fan and most consistent listener, my mother, Faye. You can get in touch with us by emailing lawmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at lawmypraxis. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter S for space and the number 42. Our shape this week is the Borg. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross-posting. Bye!